Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Salam and welcome to the podcast New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Shahna Zaqani. Today we speak with Walid Ziyad about his book Hidden Caliphate, Sufi Saints Beyond the Axis and Indus, published in 2021 with Harvard University Press. Ziyad is an assistant professor of religion at UNC Chapel Hill and holds a PhD from Yale. In Hidden Caliphate, Ziad offers an incredibly rich, fascinating, and detailed study of Sufi networks. These are expansive networks that span a wide array of geography from Afghanistan to China to Siberia, challenging dominant and often simplistic narratives of the region, reduced to the story of the Great Game. The book centers on the Naqshbandi Mujaddidi Sufi order, the Hidden Caliphate in Ziad's title, who play instrumental roles in shaping the religious, social, political, and intellectual landscapes of Central and South Asia. Ziad shows that these networks stay alive well into the 20th century in a period that, af- that other scholars have argued is one of decline, with their legacy and influence still alive even today, embedded in everyday life and culture throughout the region. The book is a riveting telling of the Mujaddidi's impact on Muslim reformist movements and their responses to the decline of Muslim political power. In our discussion today, we talk about Ziyad's arguments and contributions. And some of the more specific themes that we cover in this discussion are Islamic sovereignty and kingships, millenarian eschatology, Sufis as scholars and scholars as Sufis, intellectuals and teachers, Sufism's connection with orthodoxy, parallels between Sufi training and tantric Buddhist esotericism, the woman question in the book, and colonialism and its impacts on the Mujaddidis. Without further ado, let's hear now from Walid Ziyad himself about his book, Hidden Caliphate, Sufi Saints Beyond the Axis and Indus. Hi, Walid. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about your book, Hidden, Hidden Caliphate, Sufi Saints Beyond the Axis and Indus. As I was telling you, I'm not that familiar with uh, Sufism, but I really enjoyed this. I love the way you tell this this story, and I love the way that you describe the history. It's a very historical account, and it was fun to read. So thank you so much for writing the book and for agreeing to talk to me about it today. Uh, Shanaz John, thank you so much for having me. Uh, It is an an absolute honor and and a delight to be here. I'm a big fan of your work. Um, So uh, um, yeah, this this is great. I was looking forward for a while to actually um, come on your show and talk about this. And not to mention, of course, the fact that um, a lot of this refers to and takes place in places that are um, are part of your very intimate world. Yeah, it was a part of why I was so excited to do this, this um, interview with you, because I ever since you told me you're working on this project, I was obsessed with it. And I wanted to claim it. I think I claimed it two years ago. If I'm not <laughs> So thank you. Um, so it's our tradition on this podcast to ask our authors to tell us about themselves and describe their intellectual journey. So could you tell our audience about who you are, what your journey has been like so far? Uh, absolutely. Um, feel free to stop me because it's been a very long journey and I love talking about it. So uh, the journey actually started 
at a very young age. I think by the time I was about eight or nine years old, I was really obsessed with the history of this region, the region that now comprises Central Asia, Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, North India. Um, and one of my entry points was actually uh, ancient coins, artifacts, and, and archaeology. So from the youngest age, as long as I can remember, I always thought of this as an integrated zone. Uh, there were the, the coins of the great Kushans are found in Xinjiang, they are found in Pakistan, they are found in Afghanistan, they are found in Samarkand and Uzbekistan. So it was always a kind of second, uh, it was always sort of known to me that this whole area was actually part of a very, very rich uh, cultural zone. Uh, there are a few sort of defining moments, I think, which led to this project. One of them is certainly when I was 14, uh, I was briefly living in Uzbekistan and I visited Bukhara. And I think that city, like it does to virtually every visitor, had a profound impact on me. Um, sort of like rediscovering self. Uh, it's a city like no other. And I was also very fortunate to uh, visit, or to use the right adab, to be invited to visit the shrine of Khwaja Bahauddin Naqshband, who is the really considered the fountainhead of the Naqshbandi order, or the Naqshbandi Mujaddidi order, that is the really the centerpiece of this book. Then when I was 16, I had moved to Pakistan briefly. I was bored in school and I used to skip out on school and join these traveling treasure hunters and sort of local historians uh, on local buses traveling around and coming back five days later. Um, and it's during that period that I actually really discovered and fell in love with the Peshawar Valley. So, you know, the, it was sort of in place uh, when I was quite young, Bukhara and Peshawar. And then when I got to college, then because of a lot of the traveling that I had done, I realized that I was not a, a kind of library based, uh, you know, archival person that I really needed to see places. I really needed to actually get a feel for places in whatever form uh, before I, I got into anything. Uh, as an undergrad, I was working, I think my senior thesis was on Deoband. It was on the reformist school of North India and the way in which Deoband ideology transformed as a result of certain historical processes, uh, colonial politics, class dynamics, and eventually how one branch became the Taliban. Uh, when I was doing this work on reformist currents uh, throughout the Muslim world, really you know, little dipping into what's happening in the Southern Asian context, in the Anatolian context, et cetera, a lot of, of the pointers were going back to a figure called Sheikh Ahmad Sirhindi, who a whole chunk of movements from the, the problematic designations of fundamentalists, modernists, what have you, would all be, be using him as a starting point of their intellectual genealogy. So I will, I'll stop here because I can go on. Uh, and then this actually led me to the, the, uh, uh, the core of the book, the, the meat of the book. Well, thank you for that. That's, that's so it goes way back, and then I see that that also connects with your latest book that is just coming out. Uh, just last month on a on a cave temple um, in uh, actually just south of Swat. It's very very fascinating. So I'm excited for that one too. So how so, so tell us about this book. Tell our listeners about what this book is doing, uh, what you see as some of its main contributions, its findings. Um, I mean, it's it's really one of the richest books I've 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 read in terms of the sources you're using, the the history you're telling, um, the contributions you're making, the the different ways that um, you know the, the, you you mentioned, for example, that the story of the Mujad, uh, of the Mujaddidis 
whom you're writing about challenges the great game narratives or colonial conceptions of Islamic sovereignty, or of course, misconceptions about the Mujaddidis as, as neo-Sufis. And so a lot of really wonderful contributions that this book is um, offering to the Academy and I'd love for you to articulate some of those to us. Uh, thank you so much. I think I'll, I'll begin with just a little bit about what got me into this case study because that'll be able to then, uh, then kind of um, work us into you know, uh, what I was attempting to do here. So when I was working on my dissertation, I think at that time I was working on a really important Kabul-based Sufi lineage belonging to the Mujaddidi order. And at that time, I had met with a phenomenal, phenomenal scholar who unfortunately recently passed away, Dr. Iqbal Mujaddidi, who was in Lahore at the time. And he, I asked him about the Central South Asia connections and Afghanistan, and he pointed me to this figure called Fazal Ahmad Bishawari. He said, look into him. And I think he gave me one little sort of book to look at. It's not a little book, it's a very important book. But um, so he's the Sufi master of the late 18th and early 19th century and part of this Naqshbandi Mujaddidi order. Once I got to him, the doors just opened. It's just, I can't describe it as anything short of just a sequence of miracles. Uh, I remember visiting his shrine for the first time in Peshawar and um, he's an unknown figure, absolutely unknown figure. It's hard to even find his shrine in Peshawar. Um, and when I went in, the, um, the khadim, the, uh, the caretaker of the, sh of the shrine, uh, took me to a special um, kind of, uh, there's a storage room in the back and there was lying the, the, the um, the tombstone, the actual early tombstone from the early 19th century with, with a sequence of verses in Persian. And then he hands me a stack of books, recently published little pamphlets on metaphysics, philosophy, um, on poetry in Pashto and various other languages. And these books had been written by his descendants um, in two really unusual places. In North Waziristan, which Obama had recently, unfortunately, called the most dangerous place in the world, and the Malakand Agency, uh, which is north of Peshawar, which was just at that stage recovering from the, the, um, uh, the Pakistan-Taliban occupation. So I was wondering what was going on. So I went to Malakand, and I met with a family, and they opened up their manuscript collections, and that sort of began everything. Then I traced the footsteps of uh, Fazal Ahmad, and uh, it was a really, it was kind of a discovery of self, I think much more so than a discovery of Fazal Ahmad. Uh, so this, the, his story really from Peshawar all the way through Afghanistan and, and deep into Central Asia. What was remarkable about him was that a virtually unknown personality who's at the center of incredible Muslim social movements throughout Asia, the kings of Bukhara, uh, great kings of Bukhara in the 18th century who started this intellectual renaissance in Bukhara were not just his disciples, but his, um, his, in fact, they were Sufi guides who were trained by him. They were Khalifas, they were his deputies. One of the greatest reformers of, of the Tatar world in the Volga, Shahabuddin Marjani, was a, a, uh, a Khalifa, a deputy of his son in Bukhara, in Fargana, in Kokand, which is now in Eastern Uzbekistan, uh, Tajikistan, really at the, it was a phenomenal kingdom of the 18th century at the, in the center of China, Russia, and the Uzbek uh, Khanates. Uh, the kings of Kokand uh, have more or less recognized another one of his sons as, to use a 
improper term, but a patron saint of that empire. The Chong Madrasa, one of the largest madrasas in China until the 20th century in Xinjiang, also traced back to his lineage. Some of the great nomadic groups that actually carried on the caravan trades from deep into Central Asia, through Afghanistan, into the Indus Valley Belt, their great saints were deputies of this gentleman. The caretakers of Mazari Sharif, which is in the borders of, it's in North Af Afghanistan, a little south of the Uzbek border, and is the sacred epicenter of all of Central Asia, where Imam Ali is believed to be buried. The caretakers of Mazari Sharif were amongst his disciples, one of them actually penned his biography. Several really kind of uh, uh, unpleasant European great gamers also had very close relationships with his, his son who in Peshawar, who then helped them get into Central Asia. So it became clear that this whole area was interconnected and uh, that he and the other Sufi contemporaries that he shared the space with were tying a vast world together. Now, you asked about what this book is doing or what this book is attempting to do. And I'll start with these two dominant narratives, which really color our perception of this whole vast zone. Again, we can call it uh, Persianate zone. We can call it Central and, and South Asia. We can call it Afghanistan and its neighbors. Um, the two narratives that are, are still persisting despite the, the post-colonial turn. Um, a group of, of travelers and in fact, I would say self-marketers in the 19th century traveled in this region and painted it back home in generally in London. Um, Russians were a little bit better at this as a place of lawlessness. Uh, the Afghan, the Pashtun was basically the paradigm of, of sort of barbarity. The Amu Darya, the Oxus River was this borderland between the, the netherworld to the north where these savage nomads sort of hang out. Uh, the Khaybar Pass, which now separates Pakistan and Afghanistan or is right in the center was this kind of treacherous region that only the great adventurers could travel through. Um, this is, I would have to say in my sources, it's nonsensical. Uh, but we still have not rescued ourselves from these narratives. I mean, all you have to do is pick up an article on Afghanistan and, or in Pashtuns, and you'll hear the same rhetoric that was being um, kind of spewed out 200 years ago. And all of these are securitized narratives. They all have security and, and great game politics as the bottom line. So that on one end. The other side is the great decline narrative. Islam had a golden age. Uh, Abbasid period, and then everything's kind of been downhill since then. And 18th, 19th century, they're the absolute worst, um, which is why, of course, they needed to be rescued by the, you know, the forces of modernity and so on and so forth. We all know this too well. Um, the history that I, I was able to be privy to um, is a parallel history, and it's all brand new stuff. It's recovering a whole zone that's been systematically marginalized with problematic racial understandings. Each of these places is unknown. Uh, go to a Peshawari and ask him about the connections between Peshawar and Siberia. And, and I challenge you to find one Peshawari who knows this. Go to Siberia and ask about the connections to Peshawar. Um, go to, to Kabul and the connections that some of the Mujaddidi kings of Ka uh, uh, Sufis of Kabul became kings in, in Western China. I mean, this is, this is unknown stuff. Um, so the broader story is, is as follows. Uh, that in the 1730s, there's this um, 
soldier of fortune, very colorful, deeply problematic, but really interesting guy, Nader Shah, who comes from virtually nowhere and then carves out this empire from Iran all the way to Central Asia into Saxe Delhi. And he's got this vast, vast zone. He's one of the last great empire builders, a little bit cracked, but he's, he's a fascinating, really, really brilliant fellow. Um, the point is he dies and he dies too soon. Uh, he dies in 1747 and he does not really leave any solid uh, legacy of governance or even an ideological legacy behind. So it's this kind of trail of like pieces. Some of these pieces are picked up by one of his really important generals who is Ahmad Shah Durrani, who's Afghan. And he takes the whole chunk of this empire, kind of rebuilds it as the Afghan empire. This is happening in about you know, the 17, late 1740s, 1750s. But what ends up happening in this vast zone is that it's all broken up into, into dozens and dozens of smaller, unstable principalities. But at the same time, when all of this stuff is happening, you see this incredible development of networks of Sufis from literally one end to another, from Kazan in Russia all the way to Bengal, who are a glue that holds this society together. And this is the hidden caliphate that I'm talking about, which I'd be happy to go into detail on. Um, so who are these Sufis? Now, one of the problems is that the Orientalist imaginary, which is, is again kind of absorbed by most Muslim, I should say, um, self-declared literate communities in the, in the modern world, is that Sufis are a sort of recluse, heterodox bunch who sit in caves and they meditate. That there is an orthodoxy, which is the ulema, the scholars, and the other side, there's Sufis. This is also, um, it just does not, unfortunately, uh, stand when one looks at the sources. The period that I'm looking at, which is, in fact, any period before the 20th century, Sufism and the world of the Sharia and the jurists were actually interconnected. You can't, you can't even disconnect them. One could not exist without the other. The Sufis were scholars, the scholars were Sufi. Um, they were teaching sciences, uh, whether it's mathematics or poetics or um, grammar, um, 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 syntax, et cetera, et cetera, uh, scriptural studies. And they were also teaching very, very advanced, complex meditative sciences. The logic is that if you're going to be a jurist and you're going to be a scholar, and you haven't fixed out your internal problems, you're probably going to be a rather wretched scholar and a rather self-serving one. If you're a Sufi who's not ground in all of these sciences, you may start doing a lot of airy-fairy stuff. So um, the Sufis, because of this authority that they held, that they were what we would call scholars and Sufis, were critical in every walk of life, in providing core social services, the soup kitchens, when the, uh, the state was not providing the soup kitchens, the majority were these institutions, diplomacy, interregional diplomacy, diplomacy with colonial powers, trade, psychological counseling, and this is a really big part of what they're actually doing. Their institutions, their Sufi centers, uh, they're called Hanukkahs, were these integrated institutions that taught a whole sequence of sciences where scholars, where kings, where mendicants could sit together. There were places that broke barriers. Now, uh, the implications um, of this are, uh, you can probably get a sense, are vast. Um, the, and it could open up other avenues that first of all, we recover places like Bishawar, like Kabul, like Swat, as, um, as 
centers, not peripheries, as places of incredible uh, social movements, intellectual activity, spiritual activity. We recognize that the 18th and 19th century, rather than being this period of decline, was quite the contrary. Bukhara in Central Asia ends up with 365 colleges, of institutions of higher learning in the mid 19th century. This is very late. This is on the cusp of the, of the invasion, Russian invasion. And then we have the story of these Naqshbandi Mujaddidi Sufis who are actually the largest Muslim or the most widespread Muslim network prior to the 20th century. Um, the, uh, the sources are, are actually, that's one of the really fun sides to this because the information is so patchy and I've worked in very, very different places. In fact, I end up using things in about six different languages. The sources are really different in each one. And the sources force you to see different dimensions. Teaching manuals of mystical praxis, um, charitable endowment documents, polemical documents, travel logs, the built environment, it's a huge part of it, oral histories and so on and so forth. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop here. I was gonna, I was gonna ask you um, what the word hidden or the phrase hidden caliphate in the title refers to. You briefly addressed it in your previous answer, but I'd love to hear more. Um, okay, so this is, um, this is kind of the core uh, theme that I'm throwing out in this book. And it's a new way of understanding sovereignty in the Muslim world and understanding especially the relationship between state society and the quote unquote religious sphere. We are bound in state-centric literature. We're bound in state-centric sources. And a lot of our sources are, of course, bound in Western European uh, constructs. So we have these understandings, for example, that uh, you've got a, um, a sultanate, which is then kind of backed up by religious figures, so a kind of state and religious domain supporting each other. We've got we have several models of sovereignty that are kind of... Um, uh, offered in you know, the 101 Islam courses. Uh, what I'm offering is something quite different here. And it's a two-tiered system of sovereignty of the hidden caliphate as a kind of umbrella, as a kind of balancing agent, as a kind of glue that sits on top. And below that is the, the Zahiri, the outward or the apparent caliphate. This would be the petty princes, the kings, the state domain, whose functions are limited. They're limited to providing some form of justice and security, waging war occasionally when necessary, taxation occasionally. Um, but a whole other sequence of functions are actually provided by the hidden caliphate, which again, as the functions that I discussed right now of social services education, but this really goes into cosmic functions as cosmic intermediaries, as the, as the sort of fully realized human beings who then become intermediaries who can help other human beings realize their spiritual potential. Uh, the term is actually bound in Sufi um, uh, terms themselves, like Shawaliullah, the great 18th century mystic uh, and uh, jurist and scholar and theologian, uh, uses this, this uh, dichotomy, he puts it forward, it's something that's been circulating for quite a while. But again, it forces us to change the perspectives of where authority, where agency, where power lies. And that we have to start looking away from the army and the state to other sets of sources in order to get a more clear picture of what's happening in this vast zone. Also, um, you coined the term uh, Persian cosmopolis, 
in, which I, I thought was really interesting. And because you're, you're correct, you're offering a corrective. Um, would you like to tell your tell our audiences about what which which areas uh, you're dealing with geographically speaking? Uh, sure. Um, this this term is uh, really referring to connectivity, and it's referring to connectivity of a vast space that's bound together by the well Persian language, kind of as a lingua franca. Arabic falls in with it as well. They both are are, are languages that support each other, um, and a political ethic, an adab, uh, a way of comportment, behavior, literature um, uh, that is shared. It is a, a kind of language well beyond language that's shared in a vast zone, really, arguably from Bosnia to Bengal, possibly even, even beyond. I look at uh, Sufi networks as one of the most important binding agents for this Persianate zone. And there's a couple of important dimensions to it that rather than looking at it as a static zone, I see this as a dynamic zone. Each point in this Persianate cosmopolis has a kind of circle around it, the areas where that particular network can reach. So if we sort of look at the overlapping circles, we get a sense of this dynamic network, this way in which, again, Siberia falls into it eventually. So does uh, the Ottoman Empire, so does um, Xinjiang in China. So we get a sense of all of these regions that are connected by a shared identity and language. The uh, a couple of things that this book is doing that are a little bit different. Um, I'm arguing that this zone of exchange stays alive well into the 18th and 19th century. And the very and there's still traces of this which are evident today. Uh, there's a you know, Marshall Hudson kind of indirectly throws out the um, suggestion that this zone of exchange ended a lot earlier on. And I'm arguing that actually it does stay very much alive, even in the period of purported decline, uh, so to speak. The other thing that I'm putting forward is that in this period, you have the development of a lot of vernacular languages, vernacular identities, whether it's in various Turkic states, whether it's in the Indus Valley, whether it's uh, development of Pashto poetry and literature and a, an Afghan identity, um, so you've got a lot of these new kind of identities that are that are forming or at least being codified. What I'm actually arguing is that the vernacular and the Persianate coexist and support each other. So it's not that the vernacular comes in and displaces the zone of exchange. It's actually both of them support each other. And in fact, it's the vernacularization of this particular process that leads to a much more dynamic Persianate world that can actually incorporate more peoples, more bodies of literature, and more types of really fascinating practices. Thank you so much for that. So let's talk about Ahmad Sarhindi some more. Why, why him? What, what qualities or privileges or contexts um, facilitated his success and influence as, I wanna say the eponymous founder of the Mujaddidi order, given that his, one of his titles is the Mujaddid. Um, so tell, tell us some more about him and what's facilitating his successes. Uh, sure, uh, he's an absolutely fascinating figure and in the modern day, very misunderstood figure and unfortunately fallen prey to sort of the, a kind of rewriting of, of history that's happened in, in much of the, the uh, Muslim majority uh, regions. So he is a, um, one of the most influential figures, uh, I think, of the you know, broader Muslim world, uh, known as the reviver of the second millennium of Islam, the Mujaddid. He was uh, born in the 16th century in the Mughal Empire, in the North Indian town of Sirhind. And he, this was the time of Akbar the Great's uh, reign. And he joins actually Akbar's administration for a while. 
and he starts studying Sufism and he becomes inducted into this Naqshbandi path, which is coming in from Central Asia via a Kabuli teacher. His family also happens to be Kabuli a few generations back. Now he becomes perturbed by a couple of things. And one of them is that um, by religious scholars who are following their worldly desires, who have forgotten the sort of the core spirituality, um, who have who do not have the um, uh, the control over their their lower selves, uh, these sort of self-aggrandizing jurists, and by Sufis who have really gone beyond the boundaries of propriety, who started indulging in in behavior that is improper, uh, and basically selling a kind of a whole myriad of um, sort of two-bit practices to potential disciples who have no idea what they're actually shopping for. Um, so what he does is uh, he's got this magnum opus called the Maktubat, the collected letters, and plus a lot of other writings. And within this, what he does is he's a couple of really important things. He systematizes mystical praxis. So a really, really incredible system of, um, of meditation, of self-discovery, of, of um, uh, annihilating the inner, the ego self. That's part of what he does. And it's, we'll go into it later. Um, then he also puts forward this sort of cosmological, theological, ethical, philosophical, and practical system that proves that Sufism and Sharia are really two wings that cannot be separated. So if I give an example, um, there are many ways to express this, but the Sufi path or the path of, let's say, human enlightenment that he puts forward is a path that's shaped a bit like an arc. So let's say that you're a human and you're trying to achieve your potential as the, the vicegerent of God, as, as, a, um, as a sort of defined in, in Muslim tradition. So you'll go through certain practices, live a certain kind of life, and then you will, you will kind of move up a ladder or move up an arc. And you'll reach a certain stage of a whole sequence of stages of, of mystical unveilings and, and of uh, sort of further maturity. You'll destroy your inner the negative sides of your, of your uh, self, uh, anger and jealousy, et cetera, et cetera. And then you'll get to a particular stage where you will see nothing but God. You will annihilate yourself in God. And this is a stage where you, every single thing that you've known will cease to exist and it'll just be you and God. Now, what he says is that some Sufis will reach this position and say, great, we've understood. Now, Sharia is no longer for us. And these, the Sunnah, the prophetic example is a secondary and but we've now seen God. He says, actually, this is mistaken because you've only done one half of the path. What you have to do now is continue. You have to like extract yourself from this divine presence and move down. You move down and you come back right from where you started. But now you are an isthmus, a barzakh, a bridge between the divine presence and the uh, and the created world. So you can actually guide people in human terms, with human logic, with the sunnah and sort of basic goodness and righteousness as your guiding principles, um, which means that, uh, in fact, it's funny the, what the Mujaddidis, there's a saying which they often say is that a half-realized saint, if you throw you know, him or her in the water, um, they will, um, they will uh, um, they'll be able to walk on water. But if you throw the, but if a fully realized saint, you um, throw them into water, they'll drown. In other words, that once you actually receive your full potential, you are back down to where you started. Those, those 
prescriptions that are there for you will always be there for you because there's a reason and God knows why there's a reason for them. And their wisdom is greater than the wisdom that we can actually, um, we can actually uh, fathom. So, uh, so he puts this thing forward and it leads to a really, really interesting, um, uh, I want to call it a revolution. Uh, it's, it's like a, a whole movement. It's this Mujaddidi order comes out of his followers. Uh, who eventually are referring to them as, as themselves as mujaddidis, and it becomes uh, within one generation, one and a half generations, it's literally spreading from China to Istanbul, and it's kind of taken the Muslim world by storm. And uh, one of the really interesting things is because he was this arch synthesizer and was able to bring different types of spiritual practices, like translate one to another, translate Sharia. Into, term, into, into Sufi terms, translate Sufism uh, in other terms, that it became a, a system that absorbed a lot of other earlier systems. Um, it provided an umbrella for a lot of earlier uh, practices, networks, a lot of networks that had gone a little bit dry over the last few years. And in some of the early reports, it's, it's seen as such an efficient system for spiritual growth that people become threatened, that, that certain students are achieving things in their in several sittings, in several practices that other people were taking years to achieve. So he has actually really systematically kind of um, reverse engineered that process of, of spiritual growth to provide something that, of course, I haven't done it, so I can't really uh, opine on it, but, but uh, something that at least the, the writers are claiming is, um, is creating some, a bit of an earthquake in the spiritual intellectual sphere. Thank you. The um the, the so the mujaddids the mujaddidis how else are they different from um, other Sufis? Uh, there are I mean there's several ways. Um, well, the Naqshbandi order in general, which is the broader order in which the Naqshbandis um, uh, practice, uh, their uh, their meditative practices are silent. This is the one thing that they're known for. They believe that imprinting the the um, uh, names of God and the attributes uh, into the heart uh, and meditating in silence is a far more powerful system than, than vocalizing and the use of music, which ends up actually distracting you. It's fine. It's perfectly okay. It was done in the right circumstances, but it's just much better to actually imprint a, a system. They have a, a, an incredible um, system of, um, uh, of breathing and meditative practices that center on this idea of the, the subtle centers, which um, are like these, these metaphysical points mapped onto the human body. Uh, each one has, a, there's the, the heart, the, well, the qalb, the ruh, the, the um, uh, sir, uh, there's all of the secret, the, the heart, the, the spirit, etc., etc. And each one has a different position on the metaphysical, on the kind of mapped onto the physical human frame. And it's almost like you've got receptors, like it's almost you've got antennae. And what you do is you use certain meditative processes to really like pull out those antennae so you can start receiving divine energy and knowledge. And each one of those points is mediated by a different prophet who then mediates a different kind of knowledge, each associated with a different color. Um, and uh, then what happens is once you're able to like pull out all those antennae and you're this like this, you know, it's one incredible sort of like walking receptor, then you can actually become a traveling vehicle. And that's when your travel into the, into the self 
into the different versions of us that exist in different levels of the cosmos, then you can actually just travel up the rungs of that ladder through this, this phenomenal, um, fantastical journey that takes you to and from God. So this is something that they have spent a lot of time on, and Sir Hindi is just one of the core figures who puts this system uh, into play. You know, one of my favorite sections, in it, I had a lot of favorite sections um, in the book, and one of my favorite ones was on, on millenarian eschatology and how Sir Hindi becomes a mujaddid and, and his theory of millennial renewal and its connection with you know, the Mahdi, why the Islamic year 1000 is important to this narrative. Can you tell our listeners about this millennial connection? Because the Mujaddid obviously is relevant to this millennial connection. It was really fascinating. Certainly, certainly. This is, it's, um, it's something that's it's rooted in a very complex cosmological discourse. And I'll have to say that I understand, I read it on the surface. Uh, I think it requires a, probably to be a practitioner and someone far more versed in, uh, in the discourses to understand what the reality of the Kaaba and the reality of Muhammad are, which are sort of these concepts that underlie this. So in, in uh, the Muslim context, we have the idea of cyclical time, right? The, it's the sort of time is heading in a certain direction, but then there's this idea of like remembrance and forgetting. Your prophet comes in, reminds you of what you already know, what your fitrah is already aware of, what your nature is aware of, and then you summarily forget because that's what the insan does, the insan forgets. And of course, every prophetic age is, is cyclical, and it has a, but it has a different group, it has a different flavor to it, right? Every, every particular age, a different sharia that comes in every age. Now, after the, 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 the seal of prophecy um, is the time of the, the awliya, the, the time of the saints. And there's an understanding in a prophetic hadith that every hundred years, a renewer will come to renew the faith. And then there's a lot of discourse over what that renewal actually looks like. A lot of people claiming that they know who the renewer is or that they are the renewer. Now, so Hindi's world is a little bit different because it's about the year 1000 in the Hijri calendar and about the year 1000 from the death of the from the from the, the death of the prophet. And a lot of ideas are circulating about what this 1000 year means and a lot of this is percolating from um, an older Zoroastrian tradition, the idea of these cycles of 1000 years, which then the last of the five cycles leads to the coming of the savior figure. So what Sir Hindi posits is that there in the thousand years after the the um, the visal, the the I don't want to call it death because it would not be referred to as a death, but the passing away of the prophet, um, there are certain cosmic changes that happen, and in mediating these cosmic changes, a um, a figure is required who can actually act as a an almost a, a kind of a larger than life sort of cosmic renewer who allows the faith to sort of gives it a gives it a lease on life until that cycle will continue and then the next is going to be the coming of Imam Mahdi who is then going to of course fix everything what's not straightforward is what is this reviver and if you ask a lot of modern muslims today like oh he was a reviver because akbar did all of these practices bringing hinduism into islam and blah 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 and therefore he turned it around this is not what his contemporaries are saying Shah Waliullah in the 18th century is saying he's the part of his reason for being a mujaddid is the fact that he was able to unlock certain mysteries of the heart subtle center. Uh, there are many, many different, in fact, far more complex sort of uh, and very nuanced discourses on actually what these cosmic changes really mean, because they're actually happening at a metaphysical level within the mujaddidi discourse. The actual, the um, the manifestation of these in the physical world are just the, they're a minor manifestation. 
Uh, part of it, of course, is the renewal of the sunnah. And he does talk about the fact that an age has come where it is very, very important to pay attention to even the minutiae of the sunnah. Uh, so I guess for the, for the lay person, uh, it, one of the manifestations of that is that make sure that every single thing is ground. The sunnah is your, the word I'm looking for. It's basically the guiding, the guiding light. Um, and then of course, there are a lot of discourses about what that actually means uh, in, in day-to-day -day life of a believer. Yeah, it was really fascinating. Thank you so much. I was surprised by the lack of mention of Sufi women in the book. There were many places where I thought, where I would have loved to see some engagement with gender um, or the women that you briefly do mention. So uh, for instance, um, in another of my favorite sections in the book, you describe the training and the instruction the, or the educational training, the, the instruction that Mujaddidi Sufis are receiving. I thought it was really interesting that it was, you know, four years, four months, four days old, which I don't know why that number four was important. Or the very comprehensive, you know, sort of Islamic knowledge, like they get training in meditation and Sufism and Sharia and fiqh and so on. Or the necessary Sufi tra spiritual tra travels uh, that are, you know, if, for the learners. So I'm, I'm curious if these instructions, if the same instructions and training applied to girls and women also, uh, whether in theory or in practice. And, you know, when did girls begin their training? Were women involved at all? Were female Sufis traveling and contributing to the expansion of these networks? Uh, sure. Okay, so my short, very problematic answer is I left it out on purpose. And I left it out on purpose because it is a huge topic. Um, when I got into my, uh, and as I should say, a spoiler alert is the subject of my next book. Um, there's something incredible happening at this moment. And it's uh, when I had was in fact had written my dissertation, um, there was a chapter on um, this one particular contemporary of um, Fazal Ahmad's who was the, the arch inheritor of the largest network in Kabul, which went into Balochistan in the Indus Valley. And um, she ends up being sort of the arch inheritor of Sir Hindi. She achieves the heights that Sir Hindi has achieved and her diploma actually has, is testament to that. What's remarkable is that there are in this period and especially in the Afghan empire and its peripheries and areas that at some stage were part but then broke off, just a preponderance of women who are um, leading these centers as in various capacities as the the um, uh, saint is a very problematic term, it doesn't quite translate, but as the, um, the peer, the, the spiritual guide, as the, the khalifa, the spiritual deputy, as the, the khadim, it it's, uh, refers to someone who's generally taking care of the management of these institutions. Um, so they are a very, very uh, significant part of what's going on. So I'm gonna mention this a little bit briefly, but Sir Hindi, Sir Hindi stresses Sufism and Sharia. And he's got two letters written to women who I believe are not named, probably left anonymously for, for a particular reason, where he talks about the necessity of women to start studying aqidah, a doctrine and jurisprudence and some the traditional Islamic sciences. And that if women, the women are a very active part of, this, of spiritual life, that if they want to be uh, responsible uh, members of spiritual life, it is very important that they know the limits so that you don't have uh, uh, 
male Sufis who then basically are charlatans who then take advantage of them and their respective communities and whatnot, because they're a big entry point into, into Sufi communities. So, and in emphasizing the, the uh, intellectual dimension um, and the academic dimension of Tasawwuf, he posits and he basically creates a space where, which necessitates a literally a parallel form of leadership within these Sufi orders. Um, so you have actually within the Sufi centers, uh, a space which is actually called the Haram Sarai or it's called the Zanana sometimes, which is actually a parallel institution which is run by women often with a separate set of finances. So, and it's a, it's a space which actually has a, it's a very, very, it's a lot of the functions are actually crisscrossing, but it also has a very different set of functions that's occurring there. I, mean, I, I, could, get, I could get lost in there, but um, the fact of the matter is that even like Ahmad Shah's, uh, the Sufi Sheikh who kind of granted him access into the Peshawar Valley, we find two generations of women who are leading his Hanukkah after he passes away in the late uh, 18th and the early 19th century. And we've got firsthand accounts of people actually visiting them. Um, I mean, it's, it, goes, it goes on and on. But the, 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 the point is that it actually is a rather interesting um, uh, question of why it is that Sir Hindi's Sufi order ends up actually giving rise to a parallel form of authority. In fact, a, um, uh, a much more engaged Sufi uh, Sheikha. Uh, who then this particular uh, um, role is is becomes much more prominent in the 18th and 19th centuries. Then there's his, then there's the mother of uh, Sufi Al Ahmed Masumi's um, mother Dilras um, Begum, right? So you you mentioned who's also viewed as a saint or you know a peer and so on. How do the how do your sources treat her? What was she like? Um, they don't they don't really treat his father either. Um, they just kind of mentioned. I uh, wish we had more sources that that could actually do it. Um, we can extrapolate uh, based on other sources. So this uh, spiritual life um, is kind of working in a family guild system at this time. And there's an understanding that, uh, you know, when you are whatever profession that you have, and if the profession is to teach the mystical sciences, obviously your family is going to have much closer access to this and that you won't have the, 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 um, the, the barrier of gender segregation there. So kind of it becomes a family enterprise. And you'll have people being trained in the meditative and spiritual sciences within the families at very young ages. So what ends up happening is that a lot of the functions end up being split. So someone like Dilras Begum will probably have received um, the kind of education her son received. And she would probably be assigned to, well, female disciples certainly uh, to handle kind of day-to-day -day problems, to handle issues relating to fiqh, to, ha to handle just issues, social issues as well, you know, problems within the community, things like that. Um, one of the important functions that they're serving is um, that the, there's an institution called the Dora. It's, it's basically, a, it's the tr travel that the male Sufi sheikhs generally do. The women do it as well, but the men do it a lot more. They'll go out and then they'll reestablish connections with Sufi communities that they had established before and, and train and teach and kind of just, you know, keep the network alive. 
When the Dora is happening, the institutions, uh, the core institutions, are generally being led by the Haram Sarai. In fact, by often the wife of the Sufi Sheikh becomes the de facto, not just the manager who's handling the day-to-day affairs of the institution, which is, again, not, not a mean task. Um, but beyond that, actually ends up being, a, being seen as an intermediary uh, uh, who then offers that spiritual guidance on behalf of the spiritual guide who is not present at the time. So uh, what's interesting is we've, as I'm working on this right now, there are a sequence of letters um, that are preserved, written by the, uh, the Mujaddidi Sheikhs at Sirhind uh, to several Mughal princesses who were uh, not just their disciples, but who were actually, um, they were given permission to teach the order. They were Sheikhs in their own right. Several of them, about at least 10 to 15, but there are many, many more probably. Um, when you read the letters, you recognize that um, uh, they are clearly trained in all of the, the um, exoteric and esoteric sciences. And these letters are not for the faint of heart. They require a doctorate to read these letters and the kind of questions that were being addressed. So one can only assume that that is the kind of, for the, the senior women in the order, members of the family who will be taking on a certain function, who will be educators in their own right, that they would have access to this breadth of knowledge. Generally less than their, their male contemporaries, the role is, is less, but it's, it's, uh, we can assume that they have gone through a very similar curriculum that you were describing. Thank you for that. And then I, you briefly mentioned at times that the ways in which some of the trainings that these Sufi learners received paralleled uh, tantric Buddhist esotericism. And I wonder why and how this happens, what is happening politically, um, what kinds of contexts are in, in, in this region that you know, are allowing for such syncretism to take place? Sure, absolutely. Um, this is a very old system, and it's an old system that's developing for a very long time. And, and I actually, in fact, I'll give a bit of a background. I was talking about the subtle points. Um, those who are familiar with the, the anagram and, and Gurdjieff, well, apparently Gurdjieff spent time at a Naqshbandi Mujaddidi Sufi uh, um, center in the North Caucasus, where he picked up that his particular uh, kind of... Uh, um, his uh, particular science. So it's, it's something that has actually worked its way into new age spirituality as well, um, strangely. Uh, so I don't use the term syncretism and, and I don't use that for a number of reasons. Um, number one, because uh, Islam as a system is built on transculturation. It's, it's an absorptive system. Uh, the, the second reason is that um, trans, this, um, this term implies a heterodoxy and margins versus a, an orthodoxy. The crazy thing is this is orthodoxy and everyone's doing it. The Ottoman kings who are Naqshbandi Mujaddidis are doing it. The Mughal princesses are doing it. The kings of Bukhara are doing it. And then everywhere all the way down to the, whoever the, you know, the faqir is who's in the darga is also doing it. So it is something that actually becomes part and parcel of orthodox practice the system of the Lataif. Sir Hindi, even in the modern day, is, is equated with kind of hardcore orthodoxy. That's his, that's his thing. In fact, if someone in the Persianate world, the Sunni Persianate world, kind of wants an authoritative orthodox figure in their lineage, they will generally bring up Sir Hindi. The system uh, 
the Latayf mentioned, you know, as far back as Al Ghazali, who talks about the the qalb, the the uh, the heart's subtle center, it becomes heavily developed, and this is where something probably really interesting is going on. And you know, I told you I'm not talking about syncretism here, but there's probably some conversations that are happening um, that we're not privy to. Uh, the Kubrawis in Central Asia start really working on this system, um, and so Alaudola Simnani and various others, uh, the idea that the you know, the human is the microcosmos um, uh, and you know, every sort of layer it sort of reflects the macrocosmos. So therefore the, the cosmos is actually mapped on even into the sort of physical frame. And then the Naqshbandis uh, end up paying a lot of attention to it. I mean, you have manuals upon manuals upon manuals of stuff on this, like just hundreds and thousands of volumes of practical and, and the theoretical side. I mean, this is more of something that is debated in the 18th century than like virtually every other topic that I'm seeing like in the broader Persian aid world, like everyone is talking about it, everyone's engaging in it. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's certain exchanges that are probably happening. Um, do know that there's some Naqshbandi Mujadidis who are in Ladakh in the 19th century and they are kind of acting as intermediaries to the Buddhist rulers there. I don't know if any of that exchange was happening at that stage. It doesn't seem to be documented, but I think a lot of this stuff sort of ended up having its you know own trajectory really Al-Ghazali's period onwards. And then yet in another, um, in other favorite parts of, uh, of the book, you discuss in detail, and you just mentioned, you've mentioned this in some of your answers earlier also, um, but I'd love to hear some, in some more details about this, about sacred kingship. So Sufis as rulers and kings, and you talk um, especially about Amir Haider, uh, who is a Sufi and a scholar and an imam and a king, and you provide his, you know, daily schedule, uh, which, I mean, this guy was very, very busy and, you know, he's, he's, celebrated and he's honored. People love him. People see him as a very pious person. They respect him. I noted that he had a hundred concubines, but you know, who doesn't? Um, but did such rulers, Sufism and, and the, the reputation, the very positive reputation that they, ha they have, their commitment to God and their community, do these things affect their rule, maybe for the better? Uh, so in terms of whether it's useful or not, it depends who you're talking to. There are people who complain that, that Amir Haidar has spent so much time in Sufi practices and that he's kind of indulging himself in, in, in teaching uh, uh, or fiqh or tafsir or whatever he was that he's teaching several hours a day that he's lost most of his kingdom. And indeed, Amir Haidar's kingdom became really small. Anyway, this is um, uh, joking aside. Um, uh, I mean, his father was, was also a great Sufi sheikh and was actually the empire builder. Um, the truth is actually this, this had a major impact and um, I'm not going to say positive negative, but there is certainly a uh, kind of behavior adab aesthetics that you're picking up when you end up spending a certain amount of time in Sufi company. Um, and when you pay even lip service to the fact that this institution, that the Sufi center is actually at the pinnacle it is the institution of higher learning. And the more Hanukkahs, the more Sufi centers you have, the better your kingdom is. That means you've got a lot more enlightened people who are hanging around. Kings are kings, they're gonna do what they gotta do. Kings kill people, they take taxes from people. They do all of that sort of stuff. So one, one can't preclude that. That said, um, virtually everyone at this time in this world is actually falling into this category in different shapes and sizes and flavors. So. Uh, you know, Asfar Muin talks about millennial sovereignty, right? And uh, he taught, he gives examples of certain kind of mega kings who sort of reinvent themselves in a Sufi form. Um, I actually argue that something really interesting happens with the Naqshbandi turn 
that you can't be so flashy about it anymore. Nakshpandis are sober. And you have to pay a little bit attention, more attention to the certain humility and the intellectual and academic side and the practical side of Sufism if you want to be that king who can actually be worthy of being called a king. The, I'll give you some really interesting examples here. Now, the Mughals, of course, are a chunk of them are Nakshbandis or Nakshbandi Mujatidi, starting from Babur. A lot of the uh, 19th century, but several Ottoman rulers uh, um, who are part of the order. Uh, don't forget, I mean, Shah Ismail, of course, was, it was a Sufi order. The Safavid order was a Sufi order, right? So regardless of what he may have become and who the Khizilbash were and what they did. But um, the, uh, at this time, amongst the various like uh, kingdoms, in Sindh, in southern Pakistan, the Indus Valley, was ruled in the early part of the 18th century by the Kalhoros, who were a Sufi lineage. In the, up till the mid to late 18th century, Xinjiang is being ruled by Khwajas. They are a Naqshbandi lineage from Central Asia, who are actually ruling for 100 years. They're the kings, their soldiery and the backbone of their administration are Buddhist. Um, You've got Fargana, Kokan, the, like the kind of empire which is slowly, slowly spreading uh, in, the, in the East, where the kings are trying to do what Bukhara is doing, like get really serious about education. They're not as good, according to the sources, but they also are paying a lot of attention to this. Emma Chadurani, in his camp, whether it's his campaigns or rulership, he has a Sufi sheikh, Sabir Shah Madzub, who uh, he's extremely close to. And Emma um, Shah is also although he is exalting himself, is also a Sufi disciple. And then you've got states that are emerging, which uh, in, even in the 19th century, which are Sufi-led states. Throughout this whole zone, one of them, uh, which perhaps you want to ask about more, is the state of Swat, which is a very, very interesting Sufi state that emerges. Uh, it's kind of chivalrous Sufi state that emerges in, in the 19th century. So to, to uh, long story short, it is actually very common and it was happening before. Uh, the question is, do we look at it? Do we have the sources to look at it? Royal chronicles will, will not talk about the practicals of it where the king of Bukhara goes and gets roughed up at, at a Sufi center because he tries to cut the line. Now, he was asked to cut the line by the sheikh, and it's a very funny story at the end of it. But that sort of stuff, you're not really going to find in the Royal Chronicles, but you may find in other sources. So I keep saying this, but, you know, as I was telling you about um, before we started this interview about how much I enjoyed the book, there just really is so much. Every chapter I had, I, I kept thinking, I'm just going to have one question that I'm going to ask Willie, then then move on. And I was like, no, but I, I want to keep reading. I want to, I want to know what happens next. I, I also wanted to know what happened at the end um, to the Mujatibis, but which we'll talk about later. But um, one of my favorite sections, and that was completely, was totally brand new to me, was the Mujatibis in Siberia and the Tartar region. You know, you, you give this anecdote um, where uh, Khwaja Verdi isn't convinced that the night prayer is necessary in winters. I'm, Isha was not necessary and so he uh, given Siberia's geographical location and there had to be religious debates and somebody had to convince him that no this is in fact compulsory for you no matter where you live but you know perhaps more relevant to our audiences would be how these networks uh, made it to Siberia who's involved in this expansion um, and so on um yeah it's 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 awesome isn't it like it's it's uh, it's cold just thinking about it um to quote a friend of mine uh, so uh, and the fact that you know you could have this this uh, this connection, it's so uh, this is something that some people may not know about. But um, when the Juchid Empire, the Mongol Empire, uh, was expanding um, into Russia and the heartlands of Asia, so they expanded you know, early on into Siberia, and then there's a certain st st stage, there's a break off stage, which is the Sibir Khanate. 
and it kind of reaches its uh, its um, zenith in the uh, as this independent state in the 16th century. Now, the Sibir Khanate is actually it's kind of ruled between a branch of the Juchids that are uh, that are uh, more based towards Bukhara, and then another which are a little bit more oriented towards um, uh, towards the uh, uh, the groups that that settled a little bit westward. So there's actually already a connection between Siberia and Bukhara in the in the 16th century. And then when there is there's a kind of Islamization process, a process of kind of creating institutions and there are a lot of conversions that happen and missionary activity that happens. So as early as the 17th century, Siberia is importing scholars from Bukhara or sending scholars to study in Bukhara. So it's kind of a, and of course, you know, Sufism is a reality everywhere. So every scholar is also a, uh, a disciple of someone and will also be receiving training and a license in Sufi practices if they're to be worth their salt. So What's interesting is, so when uh, Sheikh Ahmed Sirhindi appears, a few generations afterwards, you start having his collected letters being reproduced in Siberia. Uh, there's actually um, a friend of mine, Alfred Bustanov, who works on the Siberian networks, and his work is, is, is fascinating. Uh, um, I, I love reading it. Um, so when the, this Peshawari network extends to Bukhara, and you've got this whole influx of these scholars from the Mughal Empire who are now settling in Bukhara. A lot of these old Bukhari institutions are just getting fired up in the late 18th century, a latter part of the 18th century. And then the king is dedicating a huge, of Bukhara is dedicating a huge chunk of his revenue to the educational institutions, something I wish that our heads of state would do today. Um, but uh, alas, um, so, at that stage, you start having an exchange of the Mujaddidi scholars who are being trained from Peshawar, from Kabul, from the Afghan empire, uh, sitting in Bukhara, who are now, and there's an exchange between um, Siberia and Bukhara. What's really kind of, there's two, sorry, two cities that really emerge as the centers of this, Tobolsk and uh, Tuman, uh, where all of these sort of scholars are settling. What's really kind of interesting to consider is that the distance between, let's say, Tuman and Bukhara is just a little bit shorter than the distance between Bukhara and Bengal. And it's not exactly the easiest area to traverse. So, I mean, you know, I'm rather in awe of the people who did this, but but they did, and they created a rather interesting intellectual community and a very rich intellectual community uh, across Siberia. What happens to the Mujaddidis with colonialism and, and, and the so many other conflicts of the 19th century? I mean, or, or I guess what roles are they playing in these conflicts? Who are they supporting? Who are they negotiating with? Who are they resisting? This is a, uh, uh, an interesting uh, question, which is, uh, I'm gonna answer this in two parts. And the first is that the colonialism and the great game, the Russian-British struggle for Asia ends up actually breaking the chain, it ends up breaking the networks. The first nail in the coffin moment is actually 1880, when the Anglo-Afghan war has been fought and won by the Afghans, and then a rather interesting sort of like move by the uh, British colonial forces of finding a kind of wayward prince uh, of uh, the, the Afghan kingdom at the time and bringing him to power. This is Amir Abdul Rahman, and then funding him to fight the guys who defeated them. So then they, they sponsor and they finance and they subsidize this man who does some really interesting stuff. And this is why, of course, you know, upon history is just one has to go back to these moments and say who's in charge of a, who's responsible for, for a lot of the issues here when, uh, when fingers are pointed. 
uh, he was subsidized to do uh, a couple of ethnic cleansing campaigns um, against the Hazaras, um, against the, um, the uh, quote unquote Kafirs of what is now Nuristan today. And then he wages a systematic campaign against the Sufi orders who represent the backbone of society at the time. They represent really what you may call civil society or alternative, uh, alternative networks that, the, um, that are independent of the state. So, uh, and he kind of reinvents Islam at the time where he sort of decides that he as a king, he's gonna break the charitable endowments of the institution. So they've got no money left, ask them to pay homage to him and then rewrite a kind of, uh, a very odd, almost like bizarre modern project of a top-down religious religious system. All of this again being done in a subsidy. A lot of things happen at that time. I mean, there's the moment you've got trade borders on the Oxus River, then that the trade that undergirds the Sufi networks breaks down. Uh, and then throughout British India, as it's expanding, there are a lot of policies that end up actually can go on, in fact, ad nauseum about this, but there's a whole system of policies that are meant to break the power of the Hanukkahs or to co-opt the Hanukkahs, to co-opt the Sufi networks. Um, and many of them are land-based policies of kind of how to play around with land ownership, um, handing over the responsibility of finances to like primogeniture to the oldest child of the Sufi Sheikh, which destroys Sufi orders within, within half a generation because you've got some son who has got no interest in education or, or in meditation who then ends up with a massive land endowment, which kind of then becomes his own, um, his own fiefdom. So you've got a, a sequence of things that break the, now, that's the first part of, the, of the, uh, the answer. The second is, as a whole, you cannot say that the Mujaddidis or the other Sufis are anti or pro-colonial. The same way you'd say an educator or, or a bureaucrat is not necessarily pro or against any political, they generally have their own personal things, but as a whole, these classes are classes that represent continuity. So the hidden caliphate, the fact that it's an umbrella above the political powers means that they are flexible enough to accommodate whoever the person will be below. If it's Britain coming in, then they will accommodate, they'll work with them because their, their game is not at that level. Their game is a different game. Obviously it crisscrosses. There's a reality, there's a political reality. There are court connections with Sufi orders, but as a whole, their ethos is one to stay a step removed or at least to appear to stay a step removed so that they can actually act as the balancing agent. So the first hundred years of British, let's say colonialism, slow, slow expansion, or the Russian expansion, settler colonialism into the uh, into the steppes and later expansion down into, into Transoxiana, it's not necessarily something that hurts the networks. So these two new colonial powers just become another political force on the stage. And the Mujaddidis will actually work with them. And the Mujaddidis will be able to actually incorporate them into a system of exchange. It's only when the great game kind of hits the fever pitch. Uh, when it becomes, uh, when of course there's all of you know, kind of the racial underpinnings of the way that it plays out and the, the idea of modernity and the idea of reform and all of these sort of things kind of kick in, that there's an understanding as late as the late 19th century that these players are a little bit different from what we knew before. They don't acknowledge the hidden and the apparent caliphate. Their, their value systems are actually kind of different. And that's the moment when the, the pressure builds up. In the time of, uh, the last point I'll make here is that at the time when the actual clash takes place, you have China, uh, uh, Qing China taking over, taking over what later becomes Xinjiang. 
uh, taking over the, the territory of the Khwajas, which is uh, Western China. It is a sequence of revolts that are led by Sufis uh, and Sufi families over the course of 100 years that then actually even succeed in creating an independent state in, in Kashgar in the 1860s. Amir Abdul Rahman comes in, all of the Sufis do the mobilization across classes, across ethnicities, across the tribal and the rural and the urban spheres, because uh, they're the ones who bring all of these worlds together. So they end up being the Mujahideen behind the movements. In fact, the Anglo-Afghan wars, uh, they are the Mujahideen. They are also the ones who are fighting Amir Abdul Rahman. When the, uh, in moments where the, the British are engaged in direct combat, they will also be when war is declared and it's declared that the war is, is a just war and it's, it's a war uh, which falls under the proper juristic categories, then the Sufi sheikhs are going to become mobilizers. And in the colonial accounts, there is, a, is an absolute fear of who these people are. The frontier fanatics, the this kind of groups that they don't know where they're coming from, they don't know how they're operating, they don't know their financial system, and apparently they're impossible to defeat whether you're in the Caucasus and you're uh, a Russian uh, administrator or you're sitting in North India and you're a British administrator. And then there was Sikhism, right? Which also has a devastating impact on the Majadis. And if I remember correctly, Sarhind itself falls with the Sikh invasion. But how were you talk about how the Mujaddidis still utilize uh, their networks and resources in, in such in, during such conflicts and such times? I'd love to hear uh, for audience to hear about uh, you know something like Sikhism or the Sikh invasions and how Mujaddidis continue to operate in such times. Um, certainly, and it's a complicated and rather interesting story. Uh, Initially, so the Sikhs are, um, the Sikh missiles, the Sikh forces are you know, building up over the course of the 18th century, and they've got a bone to pick with Sirhind, and it's a pretty legitimate bone. Some a, a devastating catastrophe happened in Sikhism um, in Sirhind in the early part of the 18th century. So they sacked Sirhind several times in the course of the 18th century, and uh, the Sirhindi, the, the Naqshbandi uh, Mujaddidi Sheikhs actually bear a lot of the brunt of, the, of that opposition. These are opposing ideological systems. The Sikh state as it's developing is, is being built as an ideological and religious movement. And therefore we were talking about two opposing ideological camps. When the Sikh empire is being built under Ranjit Singh in the early part of the 19th century, then of course it also is problematic. There's a lot of destruction and devastation that takes place. But it's a bit more interesting and a bit more complicated than that because, so there's a, to move away from the religious spheres, there's a sequence of, of wars as the Sikhs are steadily moving towards um, the core Afghan territories to take Peshawar, eventually to take Kabul, which they never do. At the time, the Sikhs and the Afghans are fighting, and for a while, there are several, several big wars in the early part of the, the 19th century. And uh, in the chronicles, they hate each other, and they call each other names and this and that. But then the chronicles reach a point where they're like, yeah, but those Sikhs, they're really brave, and they're just like us. And their religious warriors are just like our Ghazis. Their Akalis are just like our Ghazis. And the Sikh sources have a similar sort of thing where it's like, yeah, we're finding them, and we can't stand these people, but you know, they're kind of like us. Uh, because they are coming from a very similar ethos, right? I mean, the, they're coming from a very similar kind of Persianate Sufi. They're sharing a, a space and the Sikh empire as it develops is a Persianate empire with Persian as language of correspondence. So the first generations of clashes are always difficult, but then the Sikh empire actually becomes a lot more amenable to the extent. So then when Ranjit Singh takes Lahore, then it's not the end of, of Naqshbandi institutions in Lahore. 
the initial invasion of Peshawar is really bad. Uh, the family of Fazalema, they have to leave, but eventually things sort of settle down. And it's really only with the, the British occupation and then the major transformation in systems, institutions that ends up really changing the whole ethos, changing the whole flavor of, of the city. What's really interesting is that I was talking to some Afghan Mujahidis in exile, uh, exile several generations ago, and they were talking about visiting Sirhind. And we were talking about the history and the 18th century and the 19th century and whatnot. And then when they said it's Sirhind, they, the langar, the, the soup kitchen was provided by Sikhs. And I was like, how does that work? He says, oh, no, no, it's perfectly fine. They're wonderful. And they're the ones who provide a soup kitchen at Sirhind at the shrine of Sheikh Ahmad Sirhindi. So it's, you know, the things are, are definitely more complicated and there are moments of, of uh, clash and then there are moments of sort of resettlement that uh, we have to account for when we're relating this. You know, I, I want to talk about, I'm, I'm very anxious to talk about SWAP. Any excuse to talk about SWAP, my place of birth, you know, my, my, my heart and, and everything. Um, so how does Fazl Ahmad's network make it here? What, what's their relationship with the Akhunda of SWAT? I want to hear about Sufism in SWAT. Sure. Uh, SWAT, is, SWAT is awesome. I, I absolutely love SWAT for, in fact, every stage in its history. Um, SWAT, SWAT is, um, is are the highlands uh, north of the Peshawar Valley. Uh, it's always been kind of its own entity, partly because it's just a little bit more difficult to access. Uh, SWAT in, uh, is Udiana. For anyone who's familiar with Buddhism, which is actually a kind of, you know, it's almost a, uh, I'm sure someone who's a specialist in the study of Buddhism will, will do justice to this, but it is really a place which, which is a, it's a heavenly place. It's a place that has much more, uh, in fact, it has its connotations sort of beyond even a physical space in, in the world. And it is dotted throughout with sort of incredible Buddhist institutions. Um, it has been a center of Buddhist learning for a long time. Uh, what's really interesting is, um, so actually, let me get to this later on because then you'll understand. <laughs> All right. So um, in the the time of Babar's Babar's uh, invasion, there's someone uh, called Sayyid Ali Tirmizi who comes from Central Asia, and he some say he comes with Babar, some say he comes separately, whatever it is, and he basically starts preaching and uh, being a spiritual guide in Swat. And a lot of the spaces that he ends up uh, occupying are actually much older spaces. They're much older spaces with, in fact, often with Buddhist settlements. So he's sort of working off of a very rich tradition of, of spirituality and uh, intellectual production. Something really interesting happens in the 19th century in Swat. There's a, a figure, so Fazal Ahmed's in Peshawar, and there's someone who comes to his, his Sufi center to study. And this is um, someone who is later known as the Akhund of Swat. Akhund is a, like a spiritual teacher or a religious teacher. So the Akhand of Swat is, is, he's not the Akhand of Swat at that time, he's a student. Uh, he comes to the, the Sufi center and um, for some odd reason, he is no longer there. Um, there are various stories as to, as, to, as to why, but whatever it is, he's got a spiritual connection to Fazal Ahmad's order. He finds a second Sheikh on the banks of the Indus in a place called Dordir, a place called Swabi now in Northern Pakistan. And he's, he finds another teacher and then he continues learning the spiritual practices and then he becomes a, a faqir. He becomes someone who spends years and years in seclusion. And in the time of seclusion, his spiritual power grows and grows and grows and people begin to recognize who this man is. At a particular point, his followers are now scattered all across the highlands, uh, the kind of the northern, what is now northern Pakistan, uh, northwestern Pakistan. They're sort of all, all across and especially in the Swat region. 
And at a certain stage, he comes to Swat. And he is, uh, he develops a Sufi center there, which is a, it's a major Sufi center, um, say, if, sort of feeding hundreds and hundreds of people every day. And he's, you know, it's, it's got its own security force and it's got lots of things going on because Swat at that stage is, an, is kind of outside of the realm of British colonial rule, outside the realm of, of Afghanistan as it's emerging as a, as a nation state, as a state, because again of its location. So at a certain stage, there's a lot of, internecine uh, kind of wars that are going on. Different groups are sort of vying with each other for power in Swat. Um, several actually even Sufi orders who are governing little, little states there. And he is more or less asked to step in and provide a security and provide some semblance of stability in Swat. And he actually sets up a state. He gives it to a to a member of another Sufi order, and he says, "Okay, I'm going to provide the sort of you know I'll make sure that this everything is in place." But then a kind of a spiritually oriented Sufi state of Swat is established, um, and eventually, when the British try to occupy, he also becomes a major anti-colonial figure and a, a mobilizer, because he is um, because he is uh, uh, a again playing this intermediary role. And he happens to be this incredibly kind of larger than life chivalrous figure. He ends up playing a kind of role like Abdul Qadir Jazairi in the British Chronicles, that this incredible person who's fighting the British, but incredibly chivalrous and incredibly good person, and they can't quite understand what his deal is. Um, the, uh, upon his death, um, there's a, I can't remember which paper it is, Times of London or whatever, somewhere Edward Lear uh, uh, writes a poem called who, which, what is it, why, or what is the Auckland of Swat? And it's this absurdist poem, which is, is, uh, is it's rather offensive, in fact, but, but it, is, it is very funny um, because it really proves that no one had any idea who this person was and what his, his power base was. Um, all right, so skipping ahead a little bit, um, actually skipping behind, uh, the state of Swat is 1860s. Um, a few years earlier, when, when the Auckland of Swat was already in Swat, uh, Fazal Ahmad's uh, lineage gets impacted by uh, problems in Peshawar, the Sikh invasion and eventually the British invasion. And they are invited to come settle in Swat because they are um, connected spiritually and for generationally connected to the Akhun. They end up set settling in a place called Tana. Um, what's incredible is that Tana and their Sufi center in Tana, where I've been actually working quite a bit recently, I was just there very, very recently. Um, it's an incredible, incredible, um, gorgeous place, actually, just all surrounded by mountains on all sides. It is just a few miles away from the birthplace of Padmasambhava, who is the second most important figure of Buddhism after Lord Buddha. Um, so it's this sort of like very spiritually potent place. And uh, it's interesting that this Sufi center, then kind of the whole network of Fazal Ahmad kind of shifts to this, this uh, place in the, in the highlands where I am actually now doing an archival project to bring a lot of his descendants' works together in a lot of the tribal areas on both sides of the Pakistan and Afghan border. Oh, thank you so much. I just I, I did not know about this Sufi history of Swat until just a few years ago, and people keep asking me about it, and I'm like, I didn't know that was a thing. I'd noticed, I'd, I knew that there were you know, shrines and it's a whole thing. A lot of women will go there to have sons, you know, and then when they get a son, they're like, I got the son because I, I, I asked this Baba instead, instead of God. But I, how does Afghanistan's relationship changes so dramatically from producing and nurturing Sufi networks and communities 
to what we end up with, you know, with these new policies that are very, very anti-Sufi by the late 1800s. And then you talk, you, like you mentioned that a lot of the Mujaddidis end up going into exile. Where do they go? What are they like? Where are they living? So, so the story is a, a little bit, actually it's a little bit more complicated, um, which is interesting because Amir Abdurrahman does what he has to do, but Sufism is so deeply intertwined within the fabric of this region. I mean, you cannot you cannot separate you know the modern region of Afghanistan from its Sufi roots, and in fact, it birthed virtually um, all the major Sufi uh, movements and networks that end up later on in the South Asian context. Um, so, what happens is Amin Abdul Rahman does his policies. Several go into exile in Sindh, actually. It's a big place of exile, um, but they will also go to various other places as well. Some will end up in Central Asia. Uh, in in Bukhara uh, and elsewhere, some will end up in Turkey. Even uh, who then there's a double exile actually from Central Asia. Then some are exiled after the uh, uh, either the Russian occupation or uh, more importantly when the uh, the Soviet control over Central Asia uh, and land reforms. Anyway, what happens is that still a huge chunk of the Mujaddidis and of the orders are still in Afghanistan, and uh, like half a generation later, uh, so the the kind of main Hanukkah in Kabul, which is going to be in my next book, it sort of, it's kind of disappears off the map for about 15, 20 years, but then it reappears as a potent, potent social political force. Uh, in fact, a social, social political forms, conservative social force against certain reforms and modernizing reforms that are being done. But the the, the Sufi centers remain very much intact. Last time I was in, in Kabul, I remember uh, 51 functional Sufi centers in Kabul alone. So even in the Soviet-Afghan war, some of the, the most important mobilizers were the Mujaddidis. Sibratullah Mujaddidi, uh, who is part of the broader network and family that Fazal Ahmad belongs to, was the first president of Afghanistan after the civil war in the 1990s. So the network is still incre incredibly powerful. And the, it's not fair to say that the Taliban are anti-Sufi necessarily. That's It's a gross simplification you don't have the same politicization of identity in Afghanistan that you end up having in colonial India, where either you're one thing or another. And identity is a lot more, I would say, I don't want to use the word fluid, I'll use the word realistic. And, and it's, it's uh, uh, in the sense that you do a lot of the, the, in fact, even the leadership of the Taliban, they're coming from families which are part of these traditional networks. So their memory of these networks is actually still very fresh. Uh, many will you know, be influenced by other ideologies that are seeping in, uh, but then still actually have a certain uh, um, very high reverence for uh, for the Sufi orders. So the situation, it's it's one can simply say that it was wiped out because in many ways one can argue that it's um, that it remains an extremely potent force, uh, potent social, political, spiritual force in Afghanistan today. Thank you for that. You know, you mentioned at times, um, you, you talk about your travels at times, and I noticed that a lot of, or most of the, most of the uh, photographs are your own. So you talk about your travels for this research, and I'm always interested in your, in your travels to these fascinating and, you know, historical places. But what traces of this history, when you, when you are talking to these people, what is it like? What is the everyday life of the residents of these, um, you know, historical places like today? Uh, it's great. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's just a breath of fresh air in, 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 uh, in sort of every way when you're kind of being, uh, pummeled by narratives of, of war and, and decline. You know, I, I don't 
like archival work. I don't like the British working in the British Library. I don't like working at these places. It's I don't like manuscripts outside of their natural habitat. Um, so uh, I understand. I mean, there's so many hagiographic silences, right? Or every source has such silences that that fine. Some of them we'll never fill in, but but even physically going to a space, there will be some continuities, regardless of how much change has happened. And there's just each of these are very formulaic sources, whether it's an endowment deed or it's a it's a travel log or I just forget the colonial accounts. I leave them till the end because they end up to be so unaware of, of what they're looking at. Um, so I mean, when I was in, in Kabul, I literally walked around mapping out all the Sufi centers and shrines and mosques in the Shor Bazar region, which is where the uh, the big Mujaddidi center uh, was and is, um, and which I'm going to be presenting also in my next book. It's you know it's important to see how I mean, you talk about a royal citadel. You want to know how far the citadel is. You want to is it big? Is it small? Sometimes you you hear about this grand educational establishment and you find out that it's not even a building. It was a tree or it was a nomadic establishment and it just blows your mind. And someone's like, yeah, we had this just recently. I was in in the desert on the Pakistan side of Rajasthan and someone's talking about a great madrasa that was around in the 18th century it, it turns out there was no building until the late 19th century it was all nomadic it was a nomadic peripatetic institution and it's just you know these things just do not come across when you're when you're playing with the sources who will say it is a madrasa and you're like okay well I know what a madrasa looks like it looks like the madrasa down the road <laughs> in uh, I don't know wherever so um now you asked about the traces the traces uh um, I've been traveling a lot in the region. I, th I think now I've counted about 140 towns in, in the three countries um, or shrine sites. And um, uh, part of it is just to add numbers now, I think. Uh, but the, uh, um, there's traces everywhere. It's um, the pilgrimage circuits, uh, the shrines, the, the, khan, the Sufi centers, the Hanukkahs, the followers. For Fazal Ahmed's network, the, um, the Sufi centers are very active in North Waziristan. Uh, in Malakan, this is Greater Swat, uh, in, uh, in Peshawar. Um, in fact, I found one copy of his work in the Hanukkah in the Sufi center that was attacked in Kabul recently. Spent a, an incredible day there and it was absolutely just, just heartbreaking to, to hear what had happened uh, last year. Um, so they're still active. Um, obviously, Mazari Sharif, the, the great... Um, pilgrimage point, which is associated with his network, is very much alive. Uh, the um, south of the Amu Darya, the Oxus River, obviously things are damaged by mostly modernity as well as, uh, as war. Um, north, you've got a preservation because of, uh, because of uh, Russian policies and sort of later, later Soviet uh, um, uh, efforts to um, museumify a lot of these sacred spaces. So Fazal Ahmad's son's Sufi center, the huge one, is still entirely there in Fargana, in, in the city of Kokand. It is one of the big tourist sites now. Um, and then, of course, the memory of these places is, you know, when I went to that one and I'm asking, okay, is there a, is there a madrasa or a Sufi center of this name? And uh, this lady on the street's like, oh, yeah, he's, um, he was uh, Imam Rabbani, Sheikh Ahmad Sirhindi's uh, um, uh, this, uh, descendant and uh, yeah, they came from Peshawar. I was like, okay, great, that's the one, <laughs> all right. Let me let me go and check it out. So um, 
so you've got a very a very different sort of thing. But you know, whether in Uzbekistan it's affected by by Soviet policies or Afghanistan, you can say affected by all sorts of things, or, or Pakistan or North India. In fact, North and South India has, it has Naqshbandi Mujaddidi presence and, and Bangladesh. These still are very, very much alive. And they're they've been so infused into the memory of, of people that um it is it's still very much there's still very much living phenomenon. I want to keep going and talking about this, but I think in terms of content, um, I don't have any more questions. But is there anything else that you would like to to add to this discussion? Um, I guess the there is going to be a next stage: the uh, collected letters and the poetry, and just tons and tons and tons of documents we've got together of the last great Sufi saint coming from Fazlullah's lineage, who was based in North Waziristan. And he had disciples on both sides of the the, uh, the Afghan-Pakistan border, and he functioned at the time that the three horrid wars happened: the Soviet-Afghan war, and then sort of the continuing the civil war, uh, Taliban, the U.S., and and continuing on to uh, to what we see today. Uh, Tay, he died in two thousand and I think two thousand five, two thousand and six. So, in other words, that that he he saw all of this and he witnessed all of this, and he was running this incredible um, uh, kind of uh, uh, Sufi center in a place where one could never imagine this kind of stuff was actually happening. So uh, I'm really interested in that question that uh, it's the last remaining sort of functional sense Sufi center of, of Fazal Ahmad's like uh, uh, initiatory and familial lineage is literally in the interstices of the world. It's literally like the one great game zone that was never occupied. Um, that because of its history ended up being completely marginalized and kind of, you know, like almost, I would say, tossed into barbarity, like it's given, given a, a, a stature of being a place which is the end of civilization uh, and treated like that for, for you know, over 100 years. And this is where, this is what was happening there. And this is one, it's an incredible parallel story of what is happening in this part of the world that has only been painted from the outside and that has only been painted from a vantage point of war and the barbaric Pashtun. Uh, this is, and it's, it's, it's gonna be, it's a vast treasure trove. We've, we've uh, digitized most of it and we're going to be publishing his collected letters that are in, in three languages. Oh, that's so exciting. That's uh, one, my last question was going to be, you know, if there's any, if you'd like to tell our um, audiences what, uh, what work you're doing and currently that we can look forward to in the near future. So you've made references to books, you, books that you're writing and other research you're doing. Um, do you want to add anything else to that? Any future? Sure, sure. I made made my my shameless pitches throughout. Uh, there's uh, the book right now, which is which is on um, also very similar zone uh, on a um, a cave temple and the history of what is today the Kabul Valley in northern of uh, Pakistan in the lost half millennium. It's the sort of five hundred to a thousand where so these incredible empires come and go uh, who are, are literally absent in all of the history books. So it's it's a lovely story of kind of this from the vantage point of material culture, especially um, uh, coins uh, and the way in which like different religious iconography from Zoroastrianism, uh, Shaivism, Vaishnavism, Middle Iranian uh, cults sort of all comes to, and Islam all sort of comes together in, in the coins that are being produced here. So that I just done my next uh, book, um, which is uh, well underway on the Kabul-based uh, Naqshbandi Mujaddidi network and its uh, and female leadership. 
the fact that there is a, um, a sort of incredible tradition that is coming out of this, uh, this particular institution and this whole network. Um, and then there will also be um, uh, this, uh, we hopefully we'll sometime next year get together and try to publish some of the materials from this, uh, this treasure trove in, in Swap and, and Waziristan. That all sounds very, very exciting and I, I can't wait for it. So Walid, that was, uh, that's all the interview. That's all the questions that I had and I enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Well, that was my conversation with Walid Ziad about his book, Hidden Caliphate, Sufi Saints Beyond the Axis and Indus, published in 2021 with Harvard. Thank you so much for tuning in. Salam. <laughs>